0: We've been going through Romans chapter 8, and we come to a passage that shows us how the Holy Spirit works and ministers to us to give a deep and profound and a rich assurance of salvation. And there's two ways we're going to look at from this passage. Now if I were to ask the average uh, Christian just on the street, or even just a, a poll here, if they knew that they were saved, if they were assured that they were saved, I think by and large a, a professing Christian would say, yeah, I'm, I, I know that I'm saved. Now some would say that even though they're not fully assured. They just would say it because it's the right thing to say, right? Um, most others that would say yes and really do have an assurance, they would go to um, make biblical arguments for their assurance. They would say, well this is true and this is true and this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and I believe those things, and so I am assured. I have assurance of salvation, and that's, that's good. We should have those kinds of biblical arguments of what we believe and therefore why we are saved, right? All of the old creeds and confessions often begin with, we believe, right? The, the, the Apostles' Creed, we believe in God the Father Almighty and so forth, so that's good, the assurance that's talked about here is different than that. And uh, we need both. We need the assurance that comes from biblical arguments and being rooted and grounded on a solid foundation of God's truth. And then we need also this inward work of the Holy Spirit giving us assurance that we see in our text here. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote a book. I think it's, a, I think it's a, based on a series of um, uh, lectures he gave on revival. But it's a book called Joy Unspeakable. The subtitle is Power and Renewal in the Holy Spirit. And in the book, he describes what he calls being filled with the Spirit or being baptized in the Spirit. I think he uses the language of baptism with the Spirit. And uh, he describes this as someone experiencing the Holy Spirit coming upon them and giving them full assurance of salvation. And then he said there's two things that are the product of this full assurance. He said one is that there's boldness, there's courage, and the other is that there's joy. So there's great boldness and there's deep joy that come from this full assurance. And he he goes kind of just a cursory review of the book of Acts and he shows again and again and again a person or a group of people experience the Holy Spirit coming upon them and the result is boldness and joy. I didn't look it up, but there's this, I think it's chapter 13 or 14, 15, somewhere around there in Acts, where some of the disciples are chased out of a city, okay? And it says they dust the, the, the they, they wipe the dust off their shoes or their sandals, and it says they continued in joy and in the Holy Spirit. So that's, right, that full assurance of salvation resulting in boldness and joy, Well, this text shows us specifically how the Holy Spirit bears witness to us and gives us assurance that we're God's children, that we are children of God. There may be no worse experience for a Christian than to live life uncertain about your adoption into God's family. Right, to go through life Uncertain, right? It's bad from the standpoint that it causes us to live anxious, and oh, how many anxious Christians there are. Have you noticed that? Maybe that's you. God doesn't want that for you. We go through life anxious, we go through life worried, we go through life um, unsure of God's love, and of course, this can lead to despair or worse. But it's also bad, on the other hand, because it calls into question the goodness of God. And his promises. He wants us to be fully assured. Could you imagine? Maybe you could because maybe this was your experience. A child in a home, unsure if mom and dad loved them. How sad that would be. Well, God does not want you uncertain of his love for you. He doesn't want any of his children uncertain of his love for them in his home, in his family. If you indeed belong to God, he wants you to be fully assured that he is your father and that you are his child and not just for a period of time, not just until you really blow it or, you know, or whatever, not just for even a long period of time but for eternity. We sang it earlier. He brings many sons to glory. Right? That's, that's, I mean, in one sense, that's the goal of the gospel as, as it pertains to us. Obviously to bring glory to God first and foremost, but as it pertains to us, it's to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He wants you to be fully assured that you are his child. And I wonder how often we think of the blessing, the rich and deep and um, glorious, stupendous blessing of being a child of God. Well, the Holy Spirit comes to give us an awareness an experiential awareness that we are God's children. And I think we need this because I'm convinced, and and I'm convinced of this because I've been there and I battle this. But I think many Christians live functionally as orphans. So I've shared this before. If you've uh, been in Bible study or been here for six or eight years, you probably have heard me share this more than once, but that's okay. It bears repeating. J.I. Packer, in his book called Knowing God, uh, which is a fabulous book, I'll give you a copy if you really want one, Um, he says this about being children of God. He said, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And this knowledge, and I would say again, I mentioned this before, but this experiential awareness, this knowledge, this deep knowledge, not just Not just knowledge in our brains because we can repeat some verses. Again, that's good. We should want to be able to do that. But this deep experiential knowledge and awareness comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the big idea from this passage, I think, is the Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children. He gives us a deep awareness and assurance of salvation and of our adoption into God's family. It's not hard to see how a deep and pervasive knowledge of our adoption into God's family would give us courage to face all of life, to be witnesses to Christ, for Christ, and to give ourselves unwaveringly to God's cause. I mean, if we are God's children, we may say, now this is not just, we could say this just with a bit of man-centered bravado, but we can truly say as God's children, come what may, I'm a child of God. Whatever comes our way, we're God's children. It's also not hard to see how this would give a joy that is unshakable and unspeakably precious. So here in our text, we see how the Holy Spirit gives us assurance, and there's, ba- there's two ways, actually, we're going to look at. The first is in verses 12 to 14, the second in verses 15 to 17, and, and there's, they mix, right? They're, they're connected to each other, which we're not going to explore a whole lot today. So there's two ways. One is a somewhat ordinary way, and I say ordinary, it's not really ordinary because anytime the Holy Spirit's at work in our lives, it's not ordinary, it's supernatural, it's dynamic, but it is, I guess, more ordinary and one way that is more direct and immediate and more extraordinary. But we see them both here in the text. Both are really important. We need both, and so we're going to look at both of them. Both have to do with being God's children. Both have to do with our adoption through the ministry of the spirit of adoption and the assurance that comes along with that. And so I've summed it up in two words, okay? So two, two ways the spirit assures us that we're God's children and that there's two words, okay? War and cry, okay? War and cry. So let's look at the first one, war. Verses 12 to 14. Now where do I get the idea of war? Warfare. Well, here's what the Spirit does in our lives, in the lives of God's children. He leads us, to make war on sin. You see that there? Verse 12 to 14, especially verse 13. He leads us to make war on sin. Of course, it it seems to be clear in verse 13, but I also want to show you how it's connected to verses 12 and 14 because I do want to draw this back to the big idea of the Spirit assuring us that we're God's children. But here's what verses 12 to 14 say. And listen for the language of war. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So let's follow Paul's logic. First, he says we're debtors. Now, this, this point kind of points us back to what we've covered already in Romans 8. Right where we talked about the, the, the Spirit and the flesh and living according to the Spirit and living according to the flesh and all of that, right? To live according to the flesh leads to death, but to live according to the Spirit leads to life and peace and all that we covered before. So here Paul is saying, so brothers, sisters, we are debtors. We, are, we owe a debt. We are under obligation, but we are not under obligation to the flesh, No way. You and I don't owe the flesh anything. All it gives us in return is death. So we don't owe the flesh anything. And here's why. Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And by die, Paul means die, eternally die. He's not just saying you'll live a shorter life if you live according to the flesh. That may be true. There are people who live according to the flesh and, and reckless lives, they probably do live shorter lives, but it's not always true. We know people who, some of the most vile people who have ever lived have lived a long time. So Paul is talking about eternal death, perishing, Like Jesus uses that word in John 3.16. We know that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, I see some of you mumbling it, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So John, or Jesus, I guess, John wrote it down, but Jesus contrasts everlasting life with perishing. In other words, everlasting perishing. That's what Paul is saying. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will perish, and you will be damned forever. Now a distinction needs to be made here, of course. Because even as Christians, I know this is going to surprise you, but even as Christians, we do struggle with sin still. Have you noticed that with other people? <laughs> I'm joking. And then they've noticed it with you. <laughs> um, but we do still battle, we do still battle against sin. We at times give into the flesh. We think fleshly thoughts at times. We're tempted by fleshly ideas. We indulge the desires of the flesh. Just think of the last time you exploded or burst out in anger or the last time you thought maybe even violent thoughts about somebody else in your mind. We battle sin, which is why we're told to confess it in 1 John 1. And it's why we're told, we'll get to it, why we're told to put to death sin. If there's no sin, we wouldn't have to put it to death. We battle sin. So that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying if you live according to the flesh, like if you stumble into sin, you're going to die eternally. That's not what he's saying. We're not to live, we're not to be so finicky and wondering if we're saved today and maybe not tomorrow, right? We're talking about assurance here. So it's not describing a a Christian who battles sin. It's describing a person who may say they're a Christian, who has laid down and made peace with sin. And there are a lot of professing Christians who have done that. Think of two boats in the same sea. One boat has some cracks in it, right, and uh, through which some water seeps into it, but the, the crew of the boat, right, they're hurrying and they're scurrying around and they're, they're patching the cracks and they're getting the water out so that they're safe, versus a boat that has the hole the size of a bowling ball and it has been engulfed in water and is now sinking to the bottom of the sea. We battle sin, no doubt. But Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In the second part of verse 13, you you might expect Paul to say, but if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. But that's actually not what he says. Instead, he tells us what living according to the Spirit looks like. And it looks like this, making War on sin. Do you see that? If you live according to the flesh, you'll die if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. So how are we to deal with sin in our lives? We are to kill it. We're to put it to death. Now, it's almost startling language to hear this, like like it seems violent, right? Right? the language of warfare, the language of violence. Now we we say amen to this when it comes to battling demonic forces. Let's go to war. Or battling demonic ideas, ideologies, let's go to war. But when it comes to sin and not the sins of other people, <laughs> right? It's relatively easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's relatively easy to go on the war path when pointing out and seeking to deal with sin in other people. But Paul is talking about dealing with our own sin. That takes patience and humility and wisdom, constant vigilance and power from the Spirit to deal with it in ourselves, and we must. I think we become accustomed to, to talking about overcoming sin in at least unhelpful ways, or at least incomplete ways. I think they're unhelpful. Maybe you find them helpful. I th- well, they're incomplete. I'll put it that way. Incomplete ways. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I've said this before, I'm getting on my soapbox again. Maybe you've heard the phrase, let go and let God. Now, if you use that phrase, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, that's okay. Usually it's a way of saying, God knows what I'm dealing with, he knows what I struggle with, and, and he will deal with it when he is good and ready. And there's some truth in that. But it's incomplete. Or sometimes we use the language of just surrendering to God. Just, I just surrender to God. Just, you know, lay down and Surrender. And of course, it's good to surrender to God. I mean, the opposite of surrendering is to fight against God. So we don't want to do that. The problem I have with these statements, the incompleteness of them, is that they tend to take the responsibility away from us to do something when it comes to fighting sin. But what does Paul say here? If by the Spirit, you, Put to death, the deeds of the body. you will live. John Owen wrote an entire book on Romans 8:13. And it's not a 50-page book. it's a 200-page yeah, book. And um, some of it's a bit morbid, a bit overly introspective, but overall, it's a good, really good book. And really, the book can be summed up in one phrase that maybe you've heard before, because this is like the one phrase that everyone shares from that book. And it's this. Here's what he said. Romans eight thirteen, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now this demolishes kind of this easy believism that is rampant um, probably everywhere but certainly in America. <clears throat> easy believism is the idea that we can believe in Christ, kind of check that box or have that ticket punched and bear no marked difference from the world. Be as immoral and ungodly as the rest of the world. No. You and I are to take up the sword and start hacking away. You and I are to take up the sword and start hacking away at sin. I find it interesting that, that, that although the Bible does talk about hating sin, right? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. This goes beyond that. It doesn't say just hate sin or just feel bad when you sin. We should hate sin. And there should be something grieving about sin when we sin. But this is telling us to do something beyond that to make war against sin. Now if I were to end right here on this point, there would be a a gigantic piece missing. Are you kind of, do you see, do you feel that right now? I wonder if you do. There'd be a huge piece missing because the big question is, and, and I know we can get down in the details, and that would be a worthy discussion. We're not going to today. But how do we put sin to death? By the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit. We put, the, we put sin to death by the Holy Spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body and this really i'm gonna let this gets into the really the secret of the christian life in one sense how do we live in the strength of another person right how do we live not in our own strength but in the strength of another namely the spirit because when we are battling sin our own sin Okay? And I want to I deal with this envy in my heart or this problem with lust or whatever it is. When we battle this, it's not like we put forth 50% effort and the Spirit puts forth 50% effort, which makes 100. No. We put forth maximal effort, 100%. And the Spirit puts forth maximal effort, 100%. And our effort is dependent upon his. Our effort is empowered by him. And so it's, it's a walk of faith. Right? We say, I'm going I'm to deal with this sin. And as we do that, we are, we are working out the miracle of the Holy Spirit working within us. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For or because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work out what he works in. Now, here's the assurance. Here's where the assurance comes in. If you do this, if you make war on sin, Paul says you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now we would expect this to refer to eternal life since death referred to eternal death and it does refer to eternal life. But I think it would be wrong to only look at this as a future promise. Like if you go to war against sin, put to death sin, you will go to heaven when you die. I guess we could say that's true right? Because it'll it'll be evidence that we belong to Christ. But I think this is saying more than that. I think we covered this last week, 1 Thessalonians 3, um, 8, verse 8. Did you cover that last week? Yeah, you did. It's like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, when he said to the church at Thessalonica, now I really live if you are standing fast in the faith. Like, I am really alive now. Now we really live. When we are actively at work, growing in sanctification, growing in holiness, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, banking on the work of Jesus to justify us fully, all of that, okay? But when we are actively engaged in the fight, and growing in sanctification, and desiring to be more like our Savior and elder brother Jesus, listen, there is a life-giving quality that comes with that. There is, that produces life in us. Life. Listen, we are called Real Life Church. I didn't plan to say this at all, but in one sense, this is real life. Right? Life in the spirit. Life walking with the spirit. Life growing in godliness. Growing in holiness. Putting sin to death. Again, John Owen said the following. He said the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on this activity of putting to death sin. The I'm going to say it again. The vigor... The power, the comfort of our spiritual life depends on this. And I think we kind of, I think we actually understand this. I think we understand this. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11 that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. Right? In just a moment of self-reflection, we... We're like, yep, it does. <laughs> we know that. Right? We know what it's like to give in to anger or lust or impurity, sexual immorality or pride or self-righteous bragging or envious self-comparison and feel like our souls are surrounded by an army besieging it. <coughs> we get it. <coughs> and I think we also know what it's like to resist <coughs> and And say no to sin. And in that moment, feel the comfort and joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice how this verse 13 connects with verse 14. Here's what it says, for. So the word for is a connecting word, okay? It connects us to what Paul previously said. He said, for all who are led by the Spirit of God... They are sons of God. I added that word they. But all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So here's what's going on. Every true Christian wants to be led by the Spirit, right? We want to be led by, the, we want all of our lives to be led by the Spirit. Is anyone here like, you know, I want some of my life to be led by the Spirit, not all of it. No, no one here. We want our lives to be led by the Spirit. But this verse, verse right, Romans eight fourteen, may be the clearest most direct statement in the Bible. There's others that kind of are like this, say almost the same thing, but the clearest, most direct verse in the Bible that show us what it means to be led by the Spirit. And what does the Spirit lead us to do? What does the Spirit lead? If you want to be led by the Spirit, you can rest assured, He's going to lead you to do this. Make war on sin. With His strength, and experience the power and comfort and vigor of spiritual life. And this shows that we're God's children. God's children are led by the spirit of adoption into conflict with sin. Not in our own strength. I hope, I hope you're encouraged in that. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, I wouldn't say veil, there's a promise here in his strength and experience his life. So, we looked at the word war. That's the first way the Spirit assures us that we're children of God. He, he, he sets us on the path of making war against sin, which bears witness that we're children of God, and we experience the life of being children of God more deeply, more profoundly. Now let's look at the word cry. Verses 15 to 17, which I'm really not going to touch on verse 17 at all. I w- really wish I could, but there's just too much here. Verses 15 to 17, here's what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the spirit leads us to cry Abba, Father. The Spirit, it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the first point we just talked about, I think we logically, again, we understand that. We understand that as we grow in holiness, there is a stronger spirit witness that we're God's children. I, th- I think we we understand that. I think the Bible is so clear about that, and we understand that. Now that's why I said that's more the ordinary way of, of the two. And this one is a bit different. I would even say it's extraordinary. Because it seems to imply that the Holy Spirit is doing something more directly, more immediately, where he acts upon us directly and in an immediate way. And it has an impact on our affections, on our emotions. Now, let me just say this. Emotions are wonderful servants of truth but they are horrible masters they are we don't want to be ruled by our emotions right we've been there and it's horrific when we've been there okay so but this work of the spirit in us it does affect our emotions our affections how we address god how we come to god how we address him when we talk to him when we pray when we worship and of course our experience of god so in verse 15 paul starts with the, the uh, by contrasting the kind of spirit that we haven't received with the one that we have okay he says for you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear okay you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear if you're in christ if you are in Christ, you have not received a spirit of slavery, a spirit of bondage that leads you back into cowering fear. Now, what is this? Well, I think Paul is referring to bondage, right? This, like being in a prison of fear as it regards judgment and condemnation. But, Romans 8.1. Who knows Romans 8.1? We know for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, right? For, right, what does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we can say, no, there's not condemnation for me. We've received a different spirit, not that spirit, now, this, this passage came to mind yesterday and I, I looked it up I'm like, man, I think this fits so well. Not perfectly, but really well with this. 1 John chapter 4. Listen to what John says. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. We have not received that spirit of bondage producing fear. So Paul, in the first, the first chapter of the second letter to Timothy, Paul urges Timothy, says, Timothy, you have not received a spirit of fear. Okay, Timothy was one who was, a little different context, but he says, you've not received a spirit of fear, but of power and love, and self-control, and he urges Timothy, push back against, resist that spirit of fear, and we ought to as well. So we not receive that spirit. Rather, we have received the spirit of adoption. We've received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You and I have received the spirit of Adoption. Now, there's a verse that's almost just like this. Galatians 4, 6. Where Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, or some some translations say the spirit of sonship, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit of the son, the spirit of sonship. That's what we've received by whom we cry abba father now there's only one person in the bible only one person in the bible we hear addressing god with the words abba father now paul teaches it here but we only hear one person actually address god with those words abba father i hope maybe you remember or hearing echoes of that right now who was that it's christ It's Christ himself. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the the night of his betrayal, Jesus is with his disciples and he is in anguish. He's about to die on the cross. He's about to bear the sins of the whole world. He's about to drink the cup of God's curse against sin. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. And he's in great anguish. He tells his disciples, he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death, he's in anguish, and he steps away from his disciples. A stone throw, stones throw, throw, and he begins to pray to the Father, and he addresses the Father, not Holy Judge, not Oh Almighty God. I mean, those would have been you know not wrong to say, but he says, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. I don't know about you. That's not just an incidental passage. Like, oh, this kind of neat moment with Jesus and the Father. I am so glad the Father didn't remove the cup. I am so glad the fa- that, that Jesus didn't skirt that responsibility and say, "Eh," you know, I am so glad that Jesus Christ drank that cup of curse and became a curse for us so that we could become children of God. It's not a mistake that the Spirit inspired Paul to write the words Abba Father here in relation to receiving the Spirit of Adoption or the Spirit of Sonship, or the Spirit of the Son. The point is clear. You and I are brought into a relationship that is very much like that of Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son. Of course, he's unique, right? We're, We're not saying that everything's the same, but we have been brought into a relationship that is very much like that of Jesus Christ, the Son. We're given the same Spirit who is the Spirit of Adoption. And it's the Spirit who enables us To cry as Jesus did, Abba, Father. Except, Jesus cried in anguish and sorrow. Our cry is not one of anguish or despair or sorrow. Ours is one of ecstatic and unspeakable joy. It really really ought to be. It really should. And here's why. Because you and I are as secure in God's family as Jesus Christ himself is. Right? His blood has purchased you. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. His Spirit is in us, the Spirit of Sonship, the Spirit of Adoption. Of course, again, Jesus is the unique Son, obviously the eternal Son, but we are as secure in God's family eternally because of the work of Christ and because of the present work of the Holy Spirit. We may not feel that security, (laughs) right? We may not feel that assurance. That's what we're working toward today. The words, Abba, Father, it's more than just kind of a mechanical uttering of those words. We're going to see in just a moment, verse 16, how we're going to look at verse 16, which I think explains how this works a bit. But I just want to park on those words, by whom we cry. By whom we cry. The language is very similar to what we saw earlier when we are told to kill sin by the Spirit. Amen. That's right. Amen. That's right. We're good. Here we cry to God as our dear Father by the Spirit. The word cry is all important. The cry to God as Abba, Father, is not a carefully calculated, calm, and sober statement of fact. It's something that wells up from within us. And we say, Abba, Father, you are my dear Father. I'm your child. Now, I think verse 16 helps to explain how this works. How the spirit of adoption enables us to cry, Abba, Father. You see, there's an assurance that comes, and we talked about this before, that comes through careful biblical arguments. We need that. We need it. We want to be theologically minded and not carried away by our Feelings, what we feel or don't feel, right? We want something to stand on when we don't feel much of anything. We want to know, okay, God's word says it, and I trust that. Amen, we want that. However, I think verse 16 shows us something more going on than just that. Listen to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness to with our spirit, that we are children of God. The spirit himself. This is something the spirit does directly. The spirit himself. Now this is not saying the spirit bears witness through the Bible that we are God's children. He certainly does that, but that's not what this says. It doesn't say he bears witness through our good works that we're God's children. He does that too. But that's not what this says. doesn't say that he bears witness through our sanctification that we're God's children. The Holy Spirit does that, but that's not what this verse says. And it also doesn't say that he bears witness to our minds that we're God's children. There's... I think the way that God typically communicates to us is through our minds, which then... Affects our hearts, right? our emotions, our affections, and our will, what we do. But this seems to kind of bypass that. I do think that's the way God normally communicates to us. There is an immediacy to this, a directness, a direct witness of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, making us aware in Our spirit, our deepest innermost being, that we are beloved children of God. And of course, of course this would move us and enable us to spontaneously and joyfully and certainly with sincerity, cry out to God, our Abba, Father. You are my Father. I am your child. Now, I think this immediacy, this direct witness of the Spirit is something that, I think is something we should seek. I think it's something we should want to know more deeply. I'm not saying we live based on whether or not we do experience it right now, but I think it's something we should want to know and experience. I'll have to admit I've been influenced by Martin Lloyd-Jones quite a bit here, Um, listen to what he says in his book, Joy Unspeakable. I mentioned the book earlier, Joy Unspeakable. He says this, said this, wrote this. When Christians are baptized by the Spirit, maybe you'd say filled with this, whatever. When Christians are baptized by the Spirit, they have a sense of the power and the presence of God that they have not known before. And this is the, and listen to what he says, and this is the greatest form of assurance. Isn't that what's going on in Romans 8, 16? I think it is. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. A nearness and sense of God's presence that brings deep, deep assurance. So I want to just, I want to I close with this. There, there's an analogy that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives and in, in that book that I think is helpful. And uh, I would just kind of shoot from the hip and share it from memory, but I probably, probably would miss some important parts. Let me just read this. It's, it's a little lengthier quote. Here's what he said. A man and his little child are walking down the road. I think of like me and my son. My, I mean, I, my other kids too when they were younger, but I think of my three-year-old son, Grayson, okay? A man and his child are walking down the road and they are walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is the child of his father. This is like the father, God the father and a Christian. The child knows he's the child of, of his father and he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that. He's happy in it, all of that. There is no uncertainty about it. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then puts him down again, and they go on their way. And then he says this, that's it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child, but oh, the loving embrace, the extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, um, let me say this. I think there's a temptation and I know this because it's my temptation. Okay? There's a temptation to go through the Christian life and not have any expectation of anything extraordinary to happen. We just kind of, you know, we just get up and we do our thing day by day by day, and there's, that's good. A lot of our lives is just doing the next thing from day to day. But we don't have any expectation of, of an extraordinary experience or encounter or work of the Spirit of God upon us and in us and through us. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. When you read through the scriptures, certainly what we looked at today, you certainly don't see that kind of lethargic approach to the Christian life. I think that this assurance, certainly the the first one we talked about, is something we should pursue. What's the application from the first one? Get at it. Get at it. Go to war against sin. In our men's Bible study yesterday, there's this phrase in Jeremiah, God's call of Jeremiah, and uh, God said to Jeremiah, get dressed, get up and get dressed. And somebody said, it's like God saying, put on your big boy pants. And that's what we gotta do. Get dressed, get ready for action, gird up your loins and get at it. And when it comes to the second work of the Spirit, this more immediate, direct, we can't make it happen. We don't just, right? There's a lot of things that I think happen in the name of Spirit. I don't really subscribe to, I wouldn't, but we should certainly seek it. We can't snap our fingers and say, well, if you do these three things, ta-da, but we should seek it. It's like Paul when he prayed for the, the, the believers in Ephesus. These were Christians. And he prayed in Ephesians chapter 3 that they would Um, have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, there's something to that. We just can't get our arms around. That you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. I think we should seek that. Um, Every few months, I make a trip up to Minnesota for my, dar- my darling wife. I mean, it's for our family, but it's because she loves it. There's a, there's a spring. There's a, a spring up there. There's a sink, and it's an, it's a, it's an aquifer underground. And uh, they, they built this stone sink, and there's a, ho- there's a faucet that comes out. And it's wonderful water, like fresh spring water. And I go up there with about 28, 26 or 28, five-gallon jugs and fill it up. And you know what's so amazing about that water? Now, listen, (laughs) I've been there when it's 100 degrees outside, and I went there one time when the wind chill was negative 40. Now, I didn't make the trip up there just for that when it was negative 40, but I was up there for a pastor's conference, and so I brought the jugs and did it. So, but here's the amazing thing. The water's always running. There's always life-giving water coming out of that spring. 40 below, there's a lot of ice buildup around it, but there's the waters gushing out of that faucet. Brothers and sisters, there is life in the Spirit, never-ending life. That's why Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your heart, and he who believes in me, excuse me, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so we should continually, and Paul says this continue. Don't just be filled with the Spirit once. Don't just say, well, I got that when I was saved. Be filled and keep being filled with the Spirit. And so we ought to seek that and seek this work of the Spirit, this immediate work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts bearing witness with our spirits, excuse me, upon our spirits bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God because if, this, if it is true, if it's true that, that this assurance of salvation produces, the outcome of it is courage and joy, are there any two more important things that Christians ought to exhibit in our day today? And, but courage and joy. We don't want just, just courage. Right? We'll come off as mean and brittle and angry. But we don't want just joy either without courage because then we'll just kind of be jellyfish and <laughs> kind of floating around. And we need courage and joy through the work of the Spirit giving us full assurance that we are God's children. Amen? Let's pray.